Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. In 2006, a young American was diagnosed with a chronic illness, which had major implications for her relationship with her family, with her culture, with her peers, and also with her medical practitioners. Several years later, and after many surgeries, she looks back on her diagnosis and concludes that it gave her an appreciation for life she never had before. This is the extraordinary story of Tina Aswani Omprakash. Tina Aswani Omprakash, I'm absolutely thrilled to be speaking with you today. And I want to start with your story prior to 2006, prior to a diagnosis that was made that changed your life in a whole lot of ways. Let's start with before 2006. Who were you and what were your hopes and dreams? So prior to 2006, I think I would have labeled myself as someone who was the typical first-generation South Asian woman, born and raised here, very ambitious. My father had passed away when I was eight and a half years old, so there was quite a bit of expectation on me. I remember even at my father's funeral in 1992, just feeling like an immense weight had just fallen on me as the eldest daughter in the family, that I had to now take care of my widowed mother and my sister. And it felt like a ton of bricks. And I think I carried that from the age of eight forward into high school and into college. And I ended up choosing my career based on that as well. I may have wanted to pursue something else. I wanted to go into genetics, but I needed to support my family and I needed to get out of school quickly. And so I chose a Wall Street career. And I was very successful. I mean, I was a 4.0 student throughout high school and college. You know, the typical success that as we define it in South Asian culture. So, you know, I was very driven, very motivated to make sure that I could take care of myself and my family. And when my diagnosis hit, it hit in so many ways. Not only did that ton of bricks come crashing down, I came crashing down with it. And I think I felt like a failure, for lack of a better word, in the sense that I was like, I'm 22 years old, and here I am with this life-changing diagnosis that I'm going to have for the rest of my life. Was this something that I thought could happen? Yes, of course. I, I realized that there was a hereditary nature to Crohn's disease and colorectal cancer, which is what my father passed away from. So it was not a shock to me. But at the same time, it was one of those things that I felt like I wouldn't be able to come back from. And to be fair, it was very difficult to come back from. This disease hit me very, very hard at a very young age. And here I was suddenly independent, initially independent, and being able to financially support my family to in the shambles. And now my mother needs to take care of me again. And I'm completely dependent on her and needing surgeries. So, you know, in our culture and in Indian culture, it's the eldest child and usually it's the son. But because my mom had no sons, we're supposed to take care of our widowed mother. We're supposed to take care of our parents in their old age. And not only did I feel like a failure because I couldn't get, you know, I couldn't work with uh, the kind of extreme sickness that I was 
that I was dealt with, I couldn't take care of my mom and I couldn't take care of my family. And that felt devastating to me on so many levels. Yeah, that sounds like a very difficult situation, very difficult time. What was your family like at the time? So your mom would have seen that you were ill. What about relatives, family? What did they think was going on? That's a great question, Moya. Like, I think initially we decided to keep it hush-hush. There is very much a stigma behind having such a condition. This is a bowel condition, inflammatory bowel disease. And, you know, even though you would think that people would be understanding because of my father's history and my aunt, to be fair, his sister also had Crohn's that turned into colorectal cancer and she passed away in New Delhi just a few years after my dad. So you would think that people would be understanding, but in the very beginning, we decided to keep it hush hush. My mom slowly started to tell relatives as I got sicker and sicker. And, you know, when I started to need surgery, my mom did tell the family and it was, it was very difficult because a lot of the family was like, Oh, you know, this is really a diet condition. My father was on a lot of medication. It wasn't just a diet condition. It isn't just a diet condition at all. So, you know, not only family, but like people who had no idea what the condition was. So family, friends, oh, try this, you know, guru or this Hakeem or this, uh, you know, alternative medicine practitioner. So many things were suggested to us. And, you know, I was 24, I was two years into my diagnosis and I was dropping weight very quickly, shedding pounds, you know, off my body. My hair was falling out. I wasn't able to absorb anything and I was completely anemic. And you know, I was like, to what extent do we listen to family? To what extent do we listen to family friends who really don't have that medical expertise? You know, with all due respect, I understand culturally speaking, there is very much a stigma around using medication in my experience. We prefer to go the natural route or the alternative route, but what sort of damage can that do to a patient with aggressive disease? And that's what has unfolded over the years for me is the damage that sort of societal expectations had placed on my prognosis. And I I can definitely, you know, that's a strong statement to make. So I want to make sure I clarify that. You know, my treatment was very much delayed. And with inflammatory bowel disease, Proactive disease management is encouraged because uh, you can lose a lot of bowel in surgery if the disease runs rampant. That's what ended up happening to me. I lost my colon. I lost my rectum. I now live with a permanent ileostomy bag. I've had over 20 surgeries over a seven-year period from the age of 24 to 31. And it didn't have to be that way. I'm not going to sit here and blame society for all of it. I was an adult. I was a very confused adult. I was confused. There's this term, it's ABCD, uh, American-born confused desi, they call it, um, which means you know American-born confused Indian. And I was very confused. I was very caught between my culture and societal expectations and 
respecting my elders and my doctor's advice. And honestly, it felt like a real tug of war between the two. So much so that I was being pulled in two different directions. And I didn't know, what do I pick? My brain was telling me, listen to your doctor. My heart was telling me, listen to your family. And I did listen to my family until I couldn't anymore. I ended up in emergency surgery. I had a total colectomy. And uh, at the time, I had been misdiagnosed with ulcerative colitis. So ulcerative colitis is primarily in the colon and rectum, whereas Crohn's can run anywhere in the digestive tract. So they, the surgeon and my family were actually in agreement about this. Let's go for a J-pouch. What is a J-pouch? It reverses the ostomy and fashions a J-shaped internal reservoir and basically staples it to a very small portion of your rectum that's left inside so that you can defecate, quote unquote, normally. It turned out that I had Crohn's. So Crohn's can run anywhere in the digestive tract. So it hit that J pouch. That's why I've had so many surgeries. And the reason why my doctor and my my family was actually in agreement about this was my family said I wouldn't get married with an ostomy. And that is a huge concern in our, in, in our culture is who's going to marry you with, with a bag. And that's, I can't tell you how many times I heard that question. Until this day, I still get asked that question. My husband still gets asked that question. How do you marry her with a bag? Hello, I'm standing right here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I had opted for the J pouch. My surgeon was like, you're young. You can recover from this if it doesn't work out, you know? We'll deal with it. It wasn't quite that simple, but you know, I ended up having a lot of surgeries, a lot of complications, and a lot of surgical error in the process. So, and I had to have a lot of surgeries fixed at the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic. So, you know, it wasn't a straightforward process, but I do feel that my story has been complicated by the sort of cultural nuances here. Not being able to pursue a biological therapy that would, you know, treat aggressive inflammatory bowel disease. Not being able to pursue my choice, which was actually to keep the ostomy. You know, I went through a lot of grief and separation anxiety when I had the ostomy reversed into a J pouch because I got used to it and because I felt like it saved my life. I have it back now, but it's it's one of those things where I'm like, how much of this could have been avoided? If uh, one, I wasn't so confused, and two, if there weren't so many cultural expectations placed on me at such a young age. And through all of this, Tina, how did your family come to terms with your decision? How did they come to terms with the fact that you were making the call? I think after seeing how much the ostomy had given back to me in terms of life, after that first surgery, my mom turned around completely. She's like, your father hated the ostomy. You know, I hated the ostomy. This technology has completely changed all these years later. Because by the time I got the ostomy, it was it was about 16 years after my father had passed away. So, you know, technology's changed. They improve. And she's like, it's not leaking the way your father's did. It's It's not smelling that way. It's you seem comfor- comfortable with it. You seem to be able to wear what you want and not be bothered by it. 
she came to terms really quickly with it. And I was dating my husband at the time. And even he was fine with it. And he's like, you know, just, I just want to see you healthy. And he's an Indian man as well. So to see that, you know, to me, that was reassuring. Now, my mom had come to terms with it. My grandparents really didn't mind it at all. They were fascinated by it. In fact, when they came from India, they're like, what is this thing? And you seem to be much better. So, you know, like my family came to terms with it and turned around. The extended family, I never quite felt accepted. I'm not going to lie. Were people concerned? Oh, Tina, how's your health now? Yes, people were concerned, but it was just like, I never quite felt like I fit in after that. And that was really hard for me. A couple of my aunts and uncles definitely did accept me. And it was, you know, that did help some of my closer aunts and uncles. But I did not, I really struggled with acceptance from the culture and community at that point in time. And I think I really struggled with, you know, I've heard so many times, oh, Tina, you shouldn't enter the kitchen or you shouldn't enter a temple with an ostomy, it's foul. You know, just like women on their period are told these things. And I was just like, you know, I got to live my life. This is a permanent situation at this point. And now it's a permanent situation. I'm going to go to the temple. I'm just like everybody else. I just go to the bathroom differently. So these were all things that were difficult for me to come to grips with. I could tell my in-laws were not happy about it, but it wasn't really their choice. You know, they were not happy about my husband marrying me either. And that's another piece of this story that was very, very difficult for me as well to come to terms with is I was adored when I was a Wall Street trophy. so to speak. And my husband was encouraged to marry me quickly. And the moment I needed surgeries, suddenly I was not treated the same. People started talking about me and saying, oh, you know, your son should not be, he can find better. He can do better. That's sort of what my husband's family was going through too. And it's tough for them as well. I think as parents, you want the best for your child. And you've grown up in this system. And this is what you know, that marriage is between two healthy, able-bodied people. This is what our arranged marriage sort of dictates. It's fitness in marriage, right? Fitness to produce, fitness to reproduce, fitness to work and provide. And so, and cook and clean and all those things. So Arranged marriage is very much based on that ability to produce. And I think that is a difficult thing for parents who have migrated here to the US and to other countries from India to accept, oh, how is my son marrying somebody who isn't healthy? How is how is she going to have children? How is she going to take care of him? So I could understand it from that perspective. But at the same time, was I hurt? Absolutely. It was really hard for me because here I was, I was already with Anand for two years and suddenly being told, oh, he might leave me for my illness is, he never said it, but you know, his family and family friends had questioned it. And that really hurt my feelings. It made me feel like, you know, I've been in this longstanding relationship, really love this man. 
really want to marry him. And suddenly that's being questioned because of my illness. It was very, it was deeply, deeply hurtful to my core. So yeah, I felt like my illness had really just pulled the rug from under my feet in so many ways. I hear what you're saying. And I think the story speaks for itself. I'd love to know what others were thinking. So people who are not part of your culture, what was the medical profession thinking? Because here you were being advised to go and see all kinds of other people, stop taking medication, don't even think about surgery. What was that like? What was that experience like? Because you were desperately needing somebody to accept you. If you were not, were not being accepted in the community, what about these other people? Absolutely. Fantastic question. Um, and so appropriate for healthcare practitioners to really understand Like I said, there was this tug of war going on between my medical providers and my family. And so what what did I want in this process? I really did want to follow the medical community. And my doctor at the time, my uh, gastroenterologist at the time, he was really struggling to understand. At one point, he asked my mom not to come in to uh, the appointment, which I thought was fair. My mom was very upset. And he said, Tina, you're an adult. You need to make your own decisions. And I said to him, I understand, but you don't understand that if I make certain choices, who's going to take care of me? Do, do you see what I'm saying, Liz? Like, it's, it's one of those things that she's my mother and it's unconditional. Her love for me is unconditional. But as a child, as her child, I felt that if I went against her, would she not take care of me? It was a conversation I was unwilling or unable to have at the time with my mom because I was just so sick. But I remember telling my doctor that you don't understand who's going to take care of me if I go into surgery. Am I going to go into a rehab facility? And I said it to my surgeon as well. My surgeon understood it better. He was, he was of Korean American descent. So he got it. But my GI didn't quite get it. And there were sort of There was a lot of attitude dealt to me. There was also a lot of, a couple of times the doctor did say to me that perhaps we should switch your care to somewhere else. And that felt kind of abandoning to me during a time when I was going through so much strife. You know, so it kind of felt like I was being threatened to be dropped, you know, in terms of care. And I understand where he's coming from. It's, this is... It's his job to make sure I get well. And I was going against medical advice. This was a really, really tough time for me. And I think eventually he did encourage me to go out to a bigger facility and get my care there. He was a private practitioner and he wanted me to go into a hospital system that had a proper IBD center that could handle my care. So I understood where he was coming from. But I just wish there was a little bit more cultural sensitivity, competence. I mean, obviously, this was 2006, so it's been 15 years. And we've come a long way in those 15 years. But even now, in 2021, we're having conversations around cultural humility and sensitivity and just cultural competence in general. Like This is why I talk about this, Moyes, because I want the way things are done to change. This is not just a South Asian issue. This is an Asian phenomenon. It's happening all over the Far East. It's happening in 
South Asia and Central Asia, the Middle East, we are discouraged from talking about our illnesses. I mean, in Hindi, it's called what are people going to say? And that concept is very much an Asian concept for many patients I've spoken to who relate to my story. But not just that, there's this lack of understanding when we migrate into the Western world or into different countries who don't have that kind of background and understanding of how our culture works and sort of the stigma around medication or surgery and the desire to go that alternative route. I think it needs to be explained in a way that is much more sensitive and less harsh, much more understanding to the family and also inclusive of the family because our elders are very important. They're very core to our Asian cultures. So this, this is like one major request I have to the medical community is developing that cultural understanding of different communities and what works for one community doesn't always work for another. And me saying this happens across Asian communities is very much generalizing. It's important for us to understand every community and those nuances that go into medical care if we want to provide the best care. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I'm not going to argue with any of that. And I think it's not just true of Asian communities. It's true of a whole raft of other indigenous communities, for example, where there are cultural differences which need to be taken into account. And we need people to work with the patient and their family in order to provide best care. For me, listening to you talking, Tina, you are not just an Indian. You are an American in all a raft of ways. What was it like for you with your non-Indian, non-Asian friends? How were they responding to you? How are they reacting to you? I, I completely agree with you, Moya. It's like, this is very much an issue in the indigenous communities. I've heard, I've even heard it in the Latino communities and even out of Africa. So this is really, you know, the familial respect and involvement is really core to many, many cultures across the world. And as an American woman, you know, that integration was really difficult for me because I was really caught between two cultures the American way of medicine and the Indian way of medicine. And for me, as far as my friendships go and relationships, I think it was very, very difficult for people my age to understand what it meant to be chronically ill. I think now with the advent of social media and lots of patient influencers and advocates out there, People have a little bit more of a concept of disability and chronic illness, meaning the able-bodied population has a little bit more sensitivity to it. But when I was diagnosed, you know, even in the workplace with women and men who were older than me, it was not something I could easily disclose. Even with my friends who were not of Indian descent, you know, they wanted to party, they wanted to drink, they wanted to go out and you know, eat, smoke hookah, you know, <laughs> all the things that 22-year-old kids do. And I wasn't able to keep up with that. In fact, drinking made my symptoms worse. Hookah made my symptoms worse. And late night partying, when you have a chronic illness and you need all that sleep, that Wall Street lifestyle wasn't really for me anymore. 
But when somebody needs eight to 10 hours of sleep a night and is working 14 to 16 hours a day, you know, like, where do you, that's more than 24 hours, you know? So like, it's just, there's no room for a life anymore, you know? <laughs> so it, it was very challenging. I saw a lot of friends fall off. I had a lot of friends stick around too, but it was, it was very challenging for them to understand. And I think the ones who even stuck around, once I came into the advocacy world and opened up, they fled um, because it was just, it's, I understand it's, it's too much to handle. It's a lot of information about a condition that people don't often want to know about, you know, uh, a bowel disease and talking about how it can lead to colorectal cancer. Uh, I do a lot of this kind of work and, you know, I've lost a lot of friendships over the years, but I've also gained a lot of beautiful relationships with other chronically ill people or people who might not be chronically ill, but have that empathy towards an understanding towards maybe they have a family member with a disability. Maybe they just jive with me in terms of maturity or perspective. Because that's the other thing is you grow up really quickly when you get a chronic illness. There's a lot of perspective, a lot of soul searching that you go through and perspective that you gain in the process. And a lot of times I feel like I'm a lot older than my friends. So, uh, you know, I'm in my 30s now. And, you know, when I was in my 20s, I felt like I was like double their age because I had been through so much in my life. I had seen so much and all that drinking and partying or dating, it was just, or planning this grand wedding just seemed like, you know, it, it was just like, what's the point? Because I've nearly lost my life so many times. When you look death in the eye a few times, you're just like, what's the point in all this glam? It's all a sham, you know? That's why I've sort of devoted my life to a bigger cause because I can't devote my life to the rat race any longer. You're describing an extraordinarily challenging life. And yet you've said, and I quote, and I I warned you I was going to bring this up, IBD has given me a poise and a joie de vivre I never knew before my diagnosis. So convince me about that. Convince you. I love it. I'm so glad that you picked up on that quotation from my story. As far as this goes, when I was first diagnosed and before I was diagnosed, I had a very limited perspective on what life was. You go to school, you get the best grades possible, you get an awesome job, you get married, and you have kids. That's sort of this single tunnel visioned life that perhaps was inculcated in me from childhood. I don't know. It's like societal programming. I think in many ways, this disease allowed me to see outside that box. I, going through all these surgeries, all these flare ups, all this pain made me realize that there was so much more to life, that there was. If I got that one good day, I couldn't take it for granted. I was going out. And by going out, I mean, we were planning a trip or we were going to Central Park or we were going to Governor's Island or we were going somewhere and doing something fun outside. It taught me that I couldn't take a single moment of life for granted. 
And I think when I first came into remission, it took 10 years for me to come into remission. So 2016, Mayo Clinic had corrected uh, my surgeries and put me in a clinical trial. And finally, I'd say six months or so later, I was declared in remission. And I remember asking my doctor at the Mayo Clinic, can my husband and I go to Spain? Can I travel? I haven't gone abroad in nine years. And here I was seeing all my friends jet setting and feeling all this FOMO all these years, seeing that. And all I wanted to do was just travel and get out and see the world from outside the hospital. Living with Crohn's, having had all these surgeries made me want to experience life in a larger, grander way than I ever wanted for myself. Going to Spain was the most phenomenal trip those two weeks that we went. That was huge for me to go for two weeks to a foreign country. I can speak Spanish. That's why I felt comfortable. Did I check off all the boxes? Did I make sure that there was a fridge for my medication, that there was you know, restaurants nearby that I could eat at. Did I do all of that research? Yes, I did. But for me to get out of my space, out of my home, out of my bed, and go to a foreign country, it felt like the most liberating experience of my life. And I continued that. Over the next few years, we did a lot of traveling across Europe. We got to see a lot of things that both of us wanted to see over the years. And it really gave me this joie de vivre that, you know, I felt that I could live again, that I could breathe again, and I could appreciate life for what it was. I did not have that appreciation for life until I developed Crohn's disease. And when you see rock bottom, that's when you learn to appreciate what it's like to be healthy again. And by healthy, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, uh, that, that's a little ambitious of a word. We're in remission. <laughs> this is still very much a chronic illness. <laughs> so I will say that it allowed me to not take life for granted anymore. Tina, you said you were adored as a Wall Street trophy. Your words, you're still adored because you're brave, you're vulnerable, and you're honest. You've redefined what it is to be an Indian, to be a woman, to be an American. You've redefined what it is to be alive. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.